0: Welcome to the Winning Move Podcast. I'm your host, Stratton Brown. I interview successful entrepreneurs from around the world to see what moves they've made in their lives to get successful and more importantly, stay successful. I'm here to make sure you can create a better life for you and your family. Let's tune in. Welcome to the Winning Move Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Today, we have an amazing guest Mr. Gary Nealon, um, I mean, an insanely successful entrepreneur, sold one company for multiple millions after doing $40 million a year in revenue, and you're, now you're in the currently in the pet space e-commerce-wise, right?
1: Yep. jump uh, In a couple different inches, but the pet space is kind of what we've been focused on uh, the last two years or so.
0: Awesome, dude. All right, let's get started. How did you even get started in entrepreneurship? And then I want to know how you transitioned into the cabinet company.
1: Yeah, so I actually, um, I didn't have anybody in my family that was entrepreneurially related or uh, that would have had an impact. I just kind of, I coming out of college, um, went and worked for a logistics company, worked my way up into like a VP of sales position pretty fast. And uh, just realized the grind of like working for other people just wasn't working for me. Because it was always, you know, what have you done lately? Not like, what has your track record been? So uh, I kind of dove into entrepreneurship. I just started looking at ways that maybe I could buy a company because I didn't have a lot of assets or anything. Um, But yeah, my first company, uh, I actually convinced some people to give me some money, uh, raised about a million and a half, bought a company and it failed epically within the first year. (laughs) So that was my first introduction to entrepreneurship. Why did it fail? Uh, So it was right around like 2007, 2008 when the economy kind of took a tank. at the same time it was it was in a dollar store space so almost everything was made of petroleum or plastic which obviously when gas prices and everything go up petroleum oh, costs go up so our actual cost per um for making everything jump by like 50 or 60 percent so it just uh, the numbers that i looked at before that didn't make sense once sort of the cost per acquisition and everything went through the roof
0: oh my god and then i was watching another interview from you you declared bankruptcy on that company did declare bankruptcy yourself or just the company? Yeah. Uh, So I had,
1: I took a personal hit on that. um, Took, yeah. So I filed personal bankruptcy. Uh, The only thing they didn't touch was my townhouse because it was so over leveraged that they just, it wasn't worth them going through the process. So (laughs) I ended up keeping that and about maybe $4,000 in the bank. uh, And that was it. So I basically started from scratch at the age of 30. um, Trying to figure out what, where I was going to go next dude,
0: how did you bounce back after that? Like that's a massive, massive hit.
1: Yeah. Uh, it wasn't easy. Um, definitely had a massive impact on me mentally, uh, physically as well. Um, kind of got depressed after that, but just came to the conclusion that like, I, you know, I couldn't sit around and do nothing. So I actually went back into sales because I still had a good name in logistics. Uh, I just knew that, I was looking for the next thing I was going to do. I wasn't going to continue to work for somebody, but um, that would buy me enough time to be able to kind of build up um, a track record or so, and then move into something different, which was the cabinet business. So how long did you go back into sales for? Uh, it was a good two and a half years, probably. Um, I waited until I could at least cover all the cover, my salary from uh, the sales job before I would actually okay. exit. Um by that time we had a warehouse and we were we had a lot of traction going. So uh it justified me kind of leaving and, and going into my into the business.
0: So, how long after that bankruptcy did you start the cabinet company?
1: Almost immediately. Um ironically, it was because one of our vendor or or one of the people that gave me money for that business um was actually importing cabinets. So I my background when I went to from college was marketing information systems. So I was like, okay, at least if I learn how to do websites again, that will, you know, get me back into the internet marketing game. Yeah. Um, so I offered to create a website for them and they were just weren't interested. They didn't think they would sell. So he was like, I'll supply you with everything you need, uh, but I don't want any part of it. He's like, if you want to build it, market it, and do all that stuff yourself, go for, go for it. So uh, that's kind of what spawned the cabinet company. I was like, all right, I'll prove, you that, prove you're that you wrong that you can actually sell these things online. Oh my God. And so what
0: was the biggest lesson you took away from that first failure?
1: Uh I'd say it was probably the first like major failure that I had. Uh, so I was, you know, I was a good student, played college basketball. Um, so I was hitting all the marks in that respect and never really had a major failure. So that was like sort of my first, it was, yeah, it was my largest and first failure, but it also showed me kind of what rock bottom was. So what I thought was rock bottom was nowhere close to what rock bottom was. So now that I know what that is, yeah. like when you tackle something on a daily basis, you're like I've been in worse, it doesn't, it doesn't really bother me.
0: Where did you play um, college ball at?
1: A small school in Pennsylvania called Susquehanna University. Oh yeah, that's awesome. Did athletics make a big impact
0: in your entrepreneurial life?
1: I think it does for anybody that that plays sports. I mean, it teaches you discipline, um, teaches the value of time, uh, key metrics, and everything that you measure in sports. Kind of transitions over to entrepreneurship, Um, but it keeps you, it forces you to keep pushing. And and like, I, I think the biggest thing that I got out of sports was just time management and understanding the effort that you put in may not have instantaneous results but long term you're going to see those results
0: that was the biggest takeaway for me like i could see like okay if i work hard it won't show right now but in a year from now i'll have developed a skill that'll help me be better make more money whatever it is
1: yeah i think especially now like with internet marketing and everything like there's instantaneous dopamine response from like a facebook ad or a google ad so people don't play the long game as much anymore which is what i'm I've always done. I've always played the long game with like SEO and content creation and that kind of stuff, just because I know that the amount of effort I put in today, you know, maybe two months, three months down the road, but I'll end up seeing some results from that down the road. Whereas other people are just focused on instantaneous results that they're trying to get today.
0: Exactly. And so, how did you start marketing the cabinet company?
1: And it was a, and it was a. When I talked to you, you told
0: me it was more of like a drop shipping company than anything else. And so, you yeah. So
1: when it. I started it, uh, we were literally. We, I mean, it sounds horrible, but we'd literally sit around a kitchen table with a 30 pack of beer, and I'd had like two friends, and we were we were back then we we're using Craigslist ads because so it was like I didn't have much money, so I was like, what are the what are the low hanging fruits? What can I put effort into without spending a lot of money that has the potential to to produce results? So it was a combination of uh, us sitting around and like literally just using Craigslist for what it was for, and just posting ads in every city about kitchen cabinets. Then I was since I was still working, I was traveling a lot. Uh, one year I actually spent last year that i worked in logistics i spent like 160 some days in a hotel so like every night i'd get back to the hotel and i'd have the choice of you know going to the bar and having a drink or i could sit in the room and i'd write a couple articles because I, I didn't really know much about cabinets so I was like if i don't okay. know about it i'm assuming the, there's you know the average buyer doesn't know the same thing that i don't know so uh, i just started learning about cabinets and I'd rewrite it from my voice which was more of a consumer voice of like hey here's something i found out about cabinets not or this company that's gonna tell you about them.
0: Yeah. And so you grew it basically off of SEO and Craigslist. Like when you say you're writing articles, that's what it was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we did SEO and Craigslist. And then once we started getting big enough that we had some data and, and traffic, I was like, okay, now let's really understand like who these people are that we're selling to. Because back then it was, um, you know, this is 2007, 2008. Most people just marketed to, to generic keywords. So they target like kitchen cabinets or all these like really broad terms. But I was like, okay, if, If everybody's targeting that, what can we target that won't have as much traffic? And that's really keyword terms that like people didn't understand because they didn't really understand the customer. They just assumed everybody was a customer. Whereas once I kind of dove into the avatar or the personality of the customer, I figured it out. I I really had like five or six different customers. And just by changing the sales copy and some of the verbiage that we were using really helped us target them specifically and increase our conversion rates.
0: So did you, did you learn how to write copy or did you hire on someone else?
1: So I've always been on the mindset that I want to learn enough to be dangerous. And then I pass it off to somebody else so I can right. actually understand it. So I, the, I picked up sales copy. I learned Facebook ads myself, Google ads myself. And I just wanted to know enough so that if I was you know, interviewing somebody down the road, yeah. I could at least understand whether they were full of shit or not. And, <laughs> you know, I may not know the most advanced technology or most advanced techniques and everything, but I know the general structure and the way it should be laid out and like what to look for. So uh, I'm a firm believer that if you're going to, if you're going to dive into something, at least get a general knowledge of it before you pass it on to somebody else.
0: I 100% agree. So this is 2007. What year did you end up selling the company or that company?
1: Uh, it was 2017 or 2018. 2000. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I had More about 10. 10 years or 11 years before I ended up selling it.
0: When did you get your company to its first seven figures?
1: Uh, Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it took a couple years um because at first it was more of my motivation was just to pay back the people that i borrowed money from so i yep. almost looked at it as like hey and it's funny i i used to write down a number on a piece of paper and i posted it in like my bathroom my kitchen and everywhere i'm like if i could just hit this number you know this this will feel good to me like the, and the original one was four thousand dollars a month I was like if i can get four thousand dollars a month i feel like i could pay everybody back and like life will be back to normal and then it went up to you know ten thousand, then fifty thousand, then hundred thousand, then a million, and then I was just like, oh shit! Like, how far can we really push this? So then it started getting up to like four million a month, and it's just like I just kept hitting hitting these numbers because that's all I would see around my house. I was just like, and I don't remember exactly when I got to the seven figure mark, but it was a couple of years in because I was thinking so small. I just kept thinking like small increments instead of like hitting, saying, let's go really big and shoot for ten million a month and see what happens. Like, so it took me a while to figure that out.
0: All right, one minute, I was so excited to talk to you. I forgot to plug in my laptop. (laughs) (laughs) Give me two seconds. Yeah. Sorry about that, man. So at what point did you, you're talking about like thinking bigger. How much sooner should you have started thinking bigger?
1: Um, you know, the way I look at businesses now, since I, I do coaching on the side and I also buy yeah. um, there comes a, a point in every business and some it varies sort of by niche and by your skill set, but it's around that five hundred thousand to a million dollar mark is when a business no longer just becomes a cash flow thing or no longer is just a side hobby, which like it, it becomes a legit business where you have to hire other people, you have to become a boss, not just an operator. So it's it's right around that mark that I should have. Um I probably didn't make my most significant moves until we hit like small eight figures so it was probably right around like 10 million dollar mark where i started we sort of started plateauing and i realized that i needed help that it was beyond my skill set that i was sort of struggling with Uh that's when i brought in a business coach and he really sort of showed me how much time i was wasting on things that was not my strong core set and that i should have been hiring for earlier so once we did that we started seeing like even even higher exponential growth
0: what is your skill set like? What is like your what was your unique ability, and then what did you hire around everything
1: else? So my unique ability is like looking at a business holistically and seeing different strategy techniques, like identifying um, different marketing strategies and different ways that we can grow the business without doing some of the traditional stuff. Um, what I suck at, which I know at this point, is managing people. Like to me, it just it was draining the life out of me. Yeah. So like being in a building where we had you know twenty some people, twenty some employees at the time. And everybody just coming in and and kind of picking my brain on different stuff. Like I I wasn't at my maximum. So it was bringing in somebody that was a true operator or bringing somebody up from within the company that was an operator that can kind of take all the day-to-day stuff off my plate and let me focus on like the exponential growth. And that's really what I started doing with like strategic partnerships, really understanding like other marketing strategies and looking at ways holistically that we can kind of grow the business without having to constantly keep bringing in new cold traffic to it. Who was your business coach? Uh, he's actually a good friend of mine now, Todd Herman. Um, so what he, he used to actually train pro athletes uh, on mindset. Um, and then he moved into sort of entrepreneurs. So I met him years before I even hired him. Um, and I just really liked his philosophy. And then when I got to the point, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm ready. Let's, let's do this and bring him in. So I brought him in for about two years and then, uh, he just helped kind of transform the operation and then structure the company for me.
0: Was that the best investment you ever made?
1: That and probably like early on masterminds. Um, cause when I said like my, my unique ability is sort of strategy and stuff like that. So I would go to masterminds that were outside of my industry and figure out like a lot of it was, like digital marketing and stuff like that and figure out, yeah. okay, if you can sell an ebook about X over here. What can I take from your strategy and apply it to my business? Whereas a lot of people don't think at the time, didn't think that way. It was just like, well, if you're selling a digital project product, this is how you sell it. Or if you're selling a physical product, this is how you sell it. But blending the kind of the two together was really interesting for me and then like even going to like real estate masterminds and all this stuff and just seeing all the different ways that people were figuring out how to run a business that were completely different than mine and what could I bring into mine from there
0: okay and as far as like your operational side that's what I had to do because I I can't handle it like I can't handle with all the people's bullshit and everything else <laughs> I really had to like put a C- COO in place And yeah. then that's what I'm trying to worry about is like exponential growth like
1: how could yeah. we grow it because I I'm just not good are you very detail oriented so I've, if, you know, I do all the personality tests and everything, I am detail oriented up until probably 80% of a project and then I get bored with it. So I need that okay. person that can kind of take over the last section of it and then okay. move on to the next thing. So yeah. that's sort of my best thing is like finding a project this is what we're going to do. I'll help you get it to 75, 80% and then whoever else is there, take that over and then let me move on to the next thing.
0: Okay. And so at what point did you start hitting like 40, like $4 million a month? Again, what point of your journey?
1: Uh, It was towards the end. So it was, that's when I knew that that was kind of another phase where I was like, okay, this is actually getting too big for me to do anything else for. Like I've kind of tapped out my marketing expertise and the stuff that I was learning. Uh, I knew there were ways operationally to kind of reduce overhead expenses and kind of Uh eke out additional dollars from that. But that wasn't my strong suit. So I was like, okay, I, I think I'm at a phase now where I either have to sell or bring in like a true next level operator that has yeah. worked in a, a massive company. Um, and then at the same time, we started running into personality or personnel trade uh, problems. So I had a guy that stole stuff from us and we were just starting to deal with all the operational headaches that as you start to grow. And I was just like, yeah. this is way too much for for me to handle at this point. And I just, I just you know, 10 years and it was like, I, I think it's time for me to get out.
0: <laughs> um, so how could you have, helped yourself grow more to be the point to you could have taken it farther like where you would have had, um, and you could be like, okay, yeah, I could keep on pushing this and I'll deal with the bullshit of operations.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I I could have, obviously I could have gone to some like CEO mastermind or COO masterminds or just figure out like how to manage people better. Um, or I could have brought somebody in as a partner or something like that, that would have had the skill set that could have applied to it. Um, Honestly, I didn't have a passion for the business. It was, you know, like yeah. I said, when I started, it was more to just pay back the money that I had borrowed. Mm-hmm. so I think if I had a stronger passion for it, I would have figured out a way. But the okay. fact that like it's fucking kitchen cabinets, like I don't really yeah. like there's so many other things that I had like that were popping up that like I was more inspired to do or or had more interest in. So I was like, if I take my time away from this business to focus on other stuff, the potential for it to go downhill is pretty good. So it's like, do I want to go okay. out where I'm, feel comfortable at, or do I want to, you know, kind of put somebody else in place, move on to the next thing and, and have the potential for it to drop. So that was sort of my motivation was the fact that I had other things lined up already that I really wanted to do that just were more interesting to me than the business itself.
0: What else did you have lined up before um, you sold it?
1: So what, one of the things we started doing with the cabinet company that I realized was that um, I really enjoyed sort of the, the, the development of tech, not that I developed myself, but sort mm-hmm. of architecting it and coming up with the idea. So within that company, we had, couple mobile apps. Um, we created our own CRM system and everything. And that was really interesting to me. So I started looking at other ways of what else can I do to a business that I can add um, tech value yeah, by just streamlining or optimizing any of the SOPs or procedures. So I had already started doing that. We started spinning off like software and stuff like that. And that was a lot more entertaining and, and, and interesting to me because it was the challenge of figuring out how do you take a human process and optimize it to the point where tech or a computer can actually do it faster cheaper and, and and better so that was one of the things we started doing and i started looking at like other industries and other niches that were just missing sort of that tech around it and that's what we started started building wow
0: and so now and i'm just gonna bounce around from point to point when you're in a evo- when you're evaluating a business what do you look at and then what what is your overall like exit plan are you like buying them up to roll them up and sell them to private equity take them to a 40 million dollar point grow them bigger
1: yeah, so it's it's interesting. I, I like as I've evolved as an entrepreneur, I've, I've you know I did it from scratch. Then I started buying up things that I thought you know had potential but didn't have the market value at this point. So now our strategy is basically yes, let's buy these up, use our skill sets specifically between my partner and I that we have you know we have very defined skill sets. Let's find businesses that fit exactly that instead of sort of guessing at what's going to work and what's not going to work. Merge them all together under one umbrella scale them for about four or five years and then exit. Um, so that's sort of the plan that we have right now and our, our sort of perspective on these businesses. So most of them are physical product businesses in the, um, in the pet space. We've also bought a couple of blogs, but I almost want to create like a wagon wheel. So if you think about it, uh, especially now with all the algorithm changes that are occurring with Facebook and Google and everything else like that, owning the traffic is going to be more important than anything else. So what we're trying to do oh, is yeah. buy up um, like Facebook groups and blogs and everything. And that's kind of the center of the wagon wheel. And then anytime we buy like a brand or anything that is sellable, those are the spokes. So if I have, you know, let's say 6 million unique hits a month, I can almost tell you exactly which products they're going to buy. And then I could go find a business, plug that into it. And it instantly scales versus me trying to guess and try to figure out like, where do I get traffic and everything else? So that's our general strategy right now is we've got about 3 million unique hits a month to all these different assets that we have. And then we bought brands around it, so we have five brands um, like pet supplements, shampoo and conditioner, and stuff like that. And what I look for right now is sort of single marketplace or single platform businesses. So it might be just on Amazon, but it's got a really good track record and they've got a lot of positive okay. reviews. Or it's on Spotify or on Shopify, but they never went to Amazon. And just like those little things, I know I could pull a couple of different levers and I could probably double or triple the business in like six months. So those, those are the opportunities that I look for is like that. And again, it comes down to that that operator who might've been running a business and got it to a level where it's like, shit, I got to hire employees now or like this is becoming way too much work for just me to do. And they either don't want to do that or they don't have the skill set to do that. And then we can just kind of come in and be like, Hey, we'll take it off your hands, give you a nice return for it. And then we'll scale it ourselves.
0: Can you hear me Gary? Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. So you were talking about, um, You're buying it from a point where a person is like, all right, I don't know what to do at this point, right?
1: Yeah, so they're buying it at a point where it's like, I either, So it's really interesting having conversations with these guys. So one, we just talked to the other day, he was ready to tank the entire business because he got it to like a million dollar mark. And he was like, I I don't know how to run it and I don't want to hire anybody. So he's like, I'm just going to let it die and make a little bit of money off of it. Like, (laughs) So people almost panic and they don't really know what to do. So it's a good time for them to sell. And then for us, it's a really good time for us to acquire it because we know that we can pull a couple of levers and, and scale it.
0: Are you looking at stuff that you can apply economies of scale operationally as well, or no?
1: For most of these, they, they are economies of scale um, because they're low low overhead expenses, like maybe one okay. employee, two employees. Uh, but yeah, definitely things that we can kind of roll together. So we did that with a couple different supplement brands. Um, we bought three of them that had very different designs and very different sort of target audiences, but we can get them, excuse me, all manufactured by the same manufacturer. So we can kind of condense them down, get economies of scale from purchasing. Uh, and then also it's easier on shipping and distribution and stuff.
0: Okay. And so, how big are you into TikTok as far as advertising? And everything
1: I am else? not. And I need to figure that out. <laughs> I still don't understand the platform. I understand the marketing and, and like how well it can do for somebody um but i haven't figured out how to apply that to the pet space specifically and make it work um okay so we're testing different things but i that's one platform that i just haven't been able to crack the uh the nut on
0: i'm struggling with it too los has been hounding me about it <laughs> about, um, and then i joined like max finn's like TikTok advertising group so i could like learn it better because my your my mindset's the same place as yours is i need to grow my brand bigger and just i need to be able to capture more audiences just because I don't, I'm not good at Facebook ads. And then I see the Google stuff going too high. And so I need to be able to just control my avatar yeah. the way I can directly market to them.
1: Yeah, uh, I know it's I know it's a, a great platform and it's also dependent on the audience that you're looking for, uh, you know, if it skews, generally skews to a, towards a younger audience at this point. So it's like, for us, we're, our, our target demographic is like 45 and above. So for us, that platform for the pet space isn't the greatest, but, um, I know there's other niches that are just crushing it with with TikTok ads,
0: bro, crushing it. Um, more inspired. So you're look when you're looking at companies to buy, are you looking for about a million in rev, like in order for it to be worth it?
1: Well, what we I would say that's probably the the minimum for us right now. Um, what we've discovered is that those businesses are just as we kind of enter the marketplace, the pet space has become very popular as well. Uh, so those businesses tend to get scooped up pretty fast. So okay. we've kind of upped that now to look at. Anywhere from like 3 million to 10 million, because the businesses don't sell as quickly. They're a little bit more complicated for somebody. Because um, what happens is people that are looking at like that 500 to a million, they may be just buying it for cash flow. So somebody may have a bunch of money sitting aside and they're like, hey, I want to make some money off of this money. Let me dump it into this pet business and I can get some, uh, you know, an income out of it. Whereas we're not doing that. We're looking for the roll up stage of it. So we need that, that little bit more complicated business actually helps us in terms of like, negotiation time and okay time to do due diligence and everything on like it uh,
0: when did you start getting into crypto mister
1: um, so crypto i got into crypto i want to say probably so i sold it four years ago roughly four years ago i'd say probably two or three years before that so i've been in crypto probably six or seven years now at this point
0: oh wow well, so you throwing like money into bitcoin at the beginning
1: not at the very beginning uh i had a It was one of those things where I know my area genius at this point and I had a friend who got, you know, made a just ridiculous amount of money off of it because he got in early, but back then it was like you had to send money to this random dude in China that you didn't know who he was and then like he had to send it to somebody else and then it it was like eight, nine different steps just try to figure out what this thing was and I just my brain couldn't process it. but it started getting easier obviously with some of the platforms that came out. So I started right before, yeah, I'd say like two years before I sold, I just started taking little chunks of it and putting it into it. Uh, and then when I sold, I took a, a good chunk of it and, and threw it into, that's when I realized that it was, it was definitely a serious thing. And I threw it into crypto or into Bitcoin and Ethereum at that time.
0: And you still mainly only hold Ethereum, right?
1: So originally, yeah, I would say the, the bulk of it's Ethereum at this point. Um, i've really started getting into diving into the like i said i like to learn things before i pass it on to somebody else i really started diving into like the nft market mm-hmm. uh but more of utility nfts so like the one it's buying up uh basically buying up assets in a video game and then the video game leases it back to users so it's again it comes back to recurring revenue so yeah um, i'm looking at ways that you know when you're it's funny you go from like a bank when you're looking at like a quarter percent returns you're like that really sucks then you go to crypto and you can put it in exo or one of those platforms You're like i get four or five percent now it's like i can get up to ten percent per month and i'm like i have a hard time investing in any of these other things when i can get a ten percent return every single month off of something you know so uh i don't know how long that'll last but uh at the same time it's a very interesting and exciting time in the in the crypto space that's for sure
0: did you invest in any of the dows that just took a ship
1: uh, so I've got a bunch in Curve and uh, Convex um, because of, they overlap each other. So Cur- yeah, Curve is used for like financial transactions and then Convex came out about five minutes after that and they basically wrapped Curve So you- because Curve has voting rights. So then Convex is basically a way for people to aggregate their voting rights in Curve and then they get what they call bribes or uh, incentives for voting the way that they want people to vote. So it's like...
0: what. It's-
1: I, it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to try to explain it, but when you see it on paper, you're like, holy shit, these guys are smart. So like they, they, they but the Dow's are, they're all over the place. They're fluctuating, but um, I look at it long-term. I'm like, I, if I look at that, it would probably drive me nuts. It's more like, I know this is money that I'm not going to need for a while, so I'm just going to let it keep accruing um, returns, returns, uh, on returns. Returns Yeah.
0: What's the APY on that thing?
1: Uh, right now it's at like 50% when you don't include the bribes and kickbacks and stuff that they give you, so uh, it can be anywhere from fifty to like uh, probably one hundred and ten, depending on what the the rewards are and stuff like that.
0: Right, and I was so I invested in Time Wonderland and like Hector Dow when they were like five hundred thousand percent APY, <laughs> <laughs> and then they both proceeded to shit the bed. And then APY. <laughs> <laughs> Did you at least I get a right? little bit out of it though? <laughs> no, bro. I think I'm still at a loss. Because I bought in a, like, at like Hector uh, at like two fifty, and now it's worth like sixty dollars. And so I, yeah, I, I would
1: just let it sit. I mean, it's like we're we're in like the you know the the winter of crypto for a little bit right now. But um, I'm just accumulating as much as humanly possible. Like just I don't even care what the price is on some of this stuff anymore. Really? Yeah. You're just like whatever. It'll go up over time. Yeah, it's gonna go up. I mean, I have no doubt in my mind. that Some of these like smaller ones might go away, but you know when you look, the way I look at it, you know, uh, and I think you may have heard me talk about this was that. I look at things that have an impact on in terms of the platform level, and not yeah, not just a utility. Uh, if people are building on top of it, then that's most likely going to be around for a long time. Whereas, exactly. if it's just you know, if you're just banking on like Shibu or one of these ridiculous ones, like what do they, you know, they have the potential to just go away because there's no need for them in reality.
0: Exactly. And so, why do they stay so long then? Because like, there's no underlying
1: utility, no underlying value, nothing. I Honestly, I, some of them I can't explain. Like the one white paper I read, it actually had in the contract that said, at some point, we're going to take all the money. Like we're, we're going to walk away with everything that you people put in. And he's like, it said, but it'll be somewhere between this price and this price. So you can, it's almost like Russian roulette. You can gamble with your money and try to get as much out of it, or you can take a massive profit right away and just walk away. I, but, but they wrote it that way. It was like, this is, that's exactly how they described it. Like this is basically a Ponzi scheme. We're telling you it's a Ponzi scheme if you want to try to make some money real quick, you can throw your money in and try to get out as fast as you can, but we're going to take it otherwise.
0: <laughs> oh my God.
1: But there, I mean, there's just people that it's the reward, you know, it's one of those things where if the risk is or if the reward is high enough. People will risk money on it. Yeah. You know, they're not going to risk everything they have, but you throw a hundred bucks at something that has the potential to do 500,000 percent. You're going to take it. Like, it's not going to oh, break yeah. the bank for you.
0: It's worth it. Well, to me, like the risk, versus reward makes sense. Yeah. Do you trade, did you ever at a point in time, like trade micro coins, like the smaller coins and then flip them?
1: No, I, I tried to stay away from that. Like I'm, now that I'm starting to do some of the NFT stuff, it, it comes with some of the, like, like some, that's sort of the reward for some of it. So I'm starting to get back into yeah. it, but I was trying to avoid doing that as like, again, that's like, is another learning curve. It's like for me to understand how to do all that stuff. It's just, I don't know if there's enough time in a day for me to actually sit down and understand it or wrap my head around it. So I kind of think, stick with the things that are a little bit simpler, a little bit easier for me to understand at this age and <laughs> go with that.
0: <laughs> are you, do you have any Hex? I know all the DM dudes are all about Hex. I'm about to buy Pulse X. You
1: no, I, I've, I've looked into Hex. It's just, again, it comes down to me. It's like, how many different things can I get involved in, in the crypto space okay. before I can't keep track of all of them? So I've got a couple of really good things that are going that are doing really solid returns. So it's like, okay, I can, you can double down on that stuff or it can go into something else that just requires me to learn more, educate more, follow more. So I've just kind of been doubling down on everything that I've been doing the last like six months. What, bro,
0: what problems are you having in your businesses now? Like is at this point you're more of an investor, you know, like you're just
1: rolling stuff up. Well, I've, and also starting st- other things, but being stupid about that. Uh, the biggest challenge that we're having in the, in the pet space right now is manufacturing lead times. Um, because everything's you know china got so backed up our products aren't made in china but the containers and everything that we put them in are so mm-hmm. our lead times went from six weeks to 16 weeks and it makes it really hard to kind of predict and and get everything uh in terms of manufacturing done and then probably also the competition um because the popularity of the pet space and everybody uh, sort of taking over a dog or cat once covid hit it uh companies have been just diving into it and especially in the e-commerce into e-commerce that were never in e-commerce. So um, they're buying them for cash flow They're So the prices are going up a little bit and the competition's is uh-huh. getting a bit tougher. So what problems are
0: you facing that you can fix yourself that you need to grow? Like, like what point Like, do you have to grow now to where, okay, uh, yeah, I'm sold it for X amount of dollars.
1: Yeah, so I I mean, one of the things I've been focusing on now, which I spend most of my time on, is sort of the banking industry. So I'm in the process of filing for a FDIC charter for myself uh, for a bank uh, for the e-commerce space, and it's an industry that I don't really—I mean, I know I know banking, but I don't know the ins and outs of banking. Like, so uh, it's a—it's been a steep learning curve, Uh, and it's been humbling because it's like what I thought I kind of understood about banking—I was a novice approach, so. Is really just tapping into people that have just a ton of industry experience. So I've been interviewing a lot of like bank presidents, uh, former CEOs, people that have started banks, people that have lost banks, and just trying to understand the landscape and like educate myself on what I don't know or that I should be you know looking for in terms of blind spots.
0: And is this? I don't want to say anything that I can't say. Can I talk freely? Oh yeah. About this one. Is this the one that's in Africa, or no? The one in Africa is the art
1: yeah I, that was more of a passion project that um hmm. i put on hold but i'm actually going back to kenya in two weeks so um i'm gonna see if i can kind of respark that so this one kind of it kind of came out of the pet in pet business so one of the things when we started buying brands um i was using my own capital to, to do the first couple acquisitions uh-huh. and i was like this is stupid like i'm i'm putting my money into this business when i can be putting it over here making a shit ton more so I'm like maybe i'll just go get a bank line of credit and that'll make it a lot easier and what i realizes how dysfunctional the banking industry is especially for entrepreneurs and for like non-traditional businesses so Uh i go to one of the banks that i've had a relationship with i have all the money that i just made from selling a business i clearly have a track record in the e-commerce space and i couldn't even get a line of credit for five hundred thousand dollars because the llc or the ein was a brand new business so they're like well until you have some history and i was just like that's complete horseshit. So they want—they literally wanted for a $500,000 loan, they wanted me to put up $500,000 of my own money that they can then loan back to me and make interest off of. And I was like, this is, it's just a broken system. Um, and I was like, I went to like 20 some different banks. And I was kind of getting the same message. It was like, well, how much inventory do you have? And do you have a physical location? I was like, no physical location. And I run lean inventory. So I don't have a lot of inventory. I want exactly. to do it just in time. Cause then it's just a lot of capital sitting around. So At that point, I actually talked to one bank president. He was like, you know, you should just start one yourself. He's like, it sounds like this is a major problem. And I was like, you could do that? (laughs) I didn't know you could just start a bank. You know, I just, then I went down this like eight month rabbit hole. Like, can I start a bank? Can I buy a bank? Credit union? Like, what what does the landscape look like? And it was just interesting to see how uh, antiquated the banking industry is for e-commerce companies and for non-traditional businesses. Like, they just, it's a it's not low hanging fruit for them. It's a little bit, a little bit higher risk. I was like, well, I can reinvent the risk profile. That's, that's easy. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. can I make this work? So um, yeah, we, I've been in the process now for about two months. Um, It's about an 18 month process, but it looks like uh, assuming everything, there's no hiccups in the way, we'll end up launching a bank um, for non-traditional businesses with a little bit different risk profile.
0: And Are you raising capital for that and just as much capital as you can and just lend it all back out to e-commerce?
1: Yeah. So what ends up happening is, uh, you know, there's like, basically it's almost like a startup company. So there's startup expenses to kind of get to the FDIC approval. And then once you get FDIC approval, they tell you how much money you need to have in reserve. Um, which usually ends up being about 25 to 30 million depending on, um, the risk profile. So, uh, at that point uh, we'll be raising money, um, for that. And we also have a couple, um, like private equity funds and stuff that are interested um, that are interested in putting money into it. So I don't think raising, it's going to be an issue, especially since banks are pretty, a pretty safe investment. Once you get them, once you get FDIC approval.
0: Okay. Is that the, is that what you're most excited about of what you're doing right now?
1: Uh, I'm really excited about some of the stuff I've been doing in crypto, but it's not like, it's not world changing. It's just like the learning curve of like understanding like, Holy crap, like, like the one that I invested in took like 15 steps. And I was like, there's no way that an average person is going to do this. So if you could figure out that process, the barrier. What What's that?
0: What do you mean by 15 steps?
1: So it was like, you had to take it from, you know, this wallet over to this platform, convert, oh, it this, Are you convert it into this wallet. Then that wallet had to convert it to something different. And it was just like, when you look at it, you're like, no wonder nobody can figure out crypto. Like any of these more complicated things. Cause yeah. it's just, the barrier to entry is really high right now. So uh, I, I I'm enjoying that. I really like, like learning new stuff and, and like implementing it. So um, figuring out that process. And then the, I think the bank is probably the, the biggest, because I, I could see it having the biggest impact for people. Okay.
0: And so what are there some things that you wish you would have known when you sold the company
1: Oh, Jesus, specifically
0: bottom. about taxes and then going to whatever else?
1: Yeah. I mean, the tax laws have changed a bit since then. Um, back then I could have had um, basically uh, LLC or holding company for all the intellectual property. And I could have been paying um, that company for releasing all the intellectual property and everything that we had, which would have created additional recurring revenue after I sold. Um, yeah, understanding the process of, you know, going through the sales process was a huge learning curve as well. Uh, understanding, that it's not really the business it's really the marketing and the way you position it um because one of the things that we did when we sold originally I had it on the market and I was only getting like an e-commerce multiple which is like two and a half to three times uh ebitda which is earnings before interest taxes and everything um when i took it off the market we repositioned it as a tech company that just happened to sell kitchen cabinets and we were able to get like an 8x or 9x at ebitda so That's it's wild. like the company never changed we didn't do anything structurally it was just how we positioned it from the marketing standpoint you know we created a couple of trademarks around some of the software um, and really went back to companies and were like hey it's a tech company just look at it from a tech standpoint and when you do you're just shifts your mind um so it's understanding the subtle nuances of a business and looking at like what are the what are the processes or technology within the business that you can trademark or patent that lend itself to a tech company versus just a physical products company.
0: What made you do that? Like what made you even think to go and like remarket it? Were you talking to brokers?
1: I was talking to brokers, but I also realized that there's basically two different channels for selling a business. There's traditional brokers, which are more like real estate agents. So it's like, hey, here's the price that we want. Let's put it on the market. And then people just come in and pick you apart. Like it's almost like real estate. You could walk into a house and you're like, oh, I need that fixed. I need that fixed. Yeah, that doesn't look right. We'll subtract that from the price. And I was like, by the time you do that, like they were just, I went through five or six different buyers and every time I was like, no, like you're, you're trying to take too much off the table. Um, So I went, took it off and I was like, there's gotta be a different process. So I went toward uh, more of like an M&A or mergers and acquisition firm, Uh uh, higher fees and everything. But they were the ones that kind of brainstormed with me and like, was like, how do we get the multiple up without, you know, putting up a bunch of effort. And that was where we kind of came up with the tech stuff. And it was like, just going that route we went to the market and we didn't have a price. It was like, if we, if you had a business that in five years could be doing $105 million a year and you had the underlying tech, what would you pay for that? And then that conversation was completely different because they're setting the price. And now when they're reviewing all the documents, they're not like, they're not looking for ways to beat down their own price. They're actually looking at ways to justify it. So like they might find something that prior would have been a subtraction and they're like, well, you know, we can handle that. Like if we bring that in house, we can fix that. And so it won't be that big of a deal. And it was was like a night and day conversation. Like they were trying to justify their price instead of trying to beat down my price. And it was a much better process. Wow. Yeah, that's a big point.
0: And then tax-wise, can you 1031 a business or no? Is that a thing?
1: I don't know the answer to that. Um, But what I should have been doing is looking at tax deduction strategies ahead of time that I could have implemented that would have driven down um, the actual tax burden. Um, So it was like, yeah, like I could have had some of the stock in in um, in a uh, trust fund or something like that, where it would have gone over there versus hitting my personal taxes. You know, there's art deductions, there's all these inv- investments that have immediate uh, you know the accrual right away, so the entire investment's written off. Um, it was sort of looking at that because I didn't have a plan to exit. It just sort of, kind of came to a head at one point, point. I was like, you know what, I'm done. I just want out. And then okay. afterwards, you know, talking to a wealth strategist and everything, they're like, Yeah, there's a lot you could have done that kind of would have set it up for better um, for reduced taxes. But at the end of the day, I was happy with what I walked away with and I, you know, it's great. So hindsight's 2020, 20, but I'm not too worried about it.
0: Um <laughs> uh, did you ever did you ever buy a jet, dude? No. I've
1: never flown no. private.
0: <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, if you can see your face right now, yeah. But never <laughs> I've never flown private. Uh, <laughs>
0: what's the what's the reasoning behind that? I'm sure all of your friends
1: press you about it. Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, not that I, I grew up in a, I would say upper lower class family. Uh, so for me, it's still really, some of you know, it's just mental things. But just yep. the idea of paying that much more for a single flight, I don't get to see the value in it. Uh, I have a hard time like looking at a flight that's you know 60000 dollars and being like. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> wow. I thought yeah. you'd for sure be flying private. I didn't know that. Yeah. No, I've actually looked at strategy. You know, again, that's another tax strategy. Like I've looked at yeah. investing in that and everything. And I just, yeah, I just haven't pulled the trigger. But it's just a mental thing, I think.
0: Wow. And what, so you told me about wealth hoarders. What other like books are fascinating that are in that um, genre? I'd say like,
1: uh what would the rockefellers do so that was actually it's a buddy of mine um who was actually my wealth advisor when i first sold the company um he basically studied what the rockefellers did and like how they were able to maintain their wealth versus the vanderbilts because they both the vanderbilts actually had more money than the rockefellers at one point and yet all the vanderbilts basically squandered wow. all their cash whereas yeah. the rockefellers you know continued to grow their wealth um so i start, really started diving into stuff like that um and understanding just how wealth is carried through generationally and like, what are the things that need to be done? Um, Cause again, I didn't, like I didn't come from a lot of wealth, so I didn't really have any examples of like what to do with your money once you get it. So um, having those types of resources and understanding how generational wealth works versus just current wealth, uh, that was a huge thing for me. So just restructuring everything that I have and putting it all, protecting it, making sure that it's not accessible if anything were to happen.
0: Um, the Rockefellers do textbooks. Will you, bro, elaborate about that wealth hoarders book? I was trying to tell people about it and how crazy <laughs> it is, how people move their money from like country to country in like a two minute quick synopsis.
1: Yeah. So, the basic concept is of wealth hoarders is it's understanding how like family offices and these generational wealth, you know, families that have had wealth for seven, eight generations, like how they maintained it. Because traditionally, yeah. like, if you look at money, if you just give like a trust fund baby their money, it's gone within that generation. Like they don't protect it. They don't conserve it. So it's not necessarily the people themselves that make the money. It's the teams that they have around them. So it's usually like accountants and lawyers. And that's what sort of the wealth orders are called is there's offices specifically designed to help you maximize your tax return. Uh, and that might be any, when you look at like companies like Google and stuff, they do it. So they might have an office in Ireland, office in China, office in the United States. And suddenly if the tax code changes in the United States, they just start invoicing higher invoices from ireland so that they can offset the tax burden and the money stays in ireland and that's basically what wealth hoarder offices do in a, in a quick synopsis it's like they basically study international tax code and they look at okay if you keep your money in this country you owe you know 10 million but if you shift it over here for a million you suddenly owe two million so you just save seven million and it's yeah. just shifting money from country to country and understanding tax code and protecting it with different layers so people can't figure out like who owns what. And it's amazing. But man, when you, when you under, when you wrap your head around it, you realize how much money is hidden in the world. It's like, it's a staggering number.
0: <laughs> well, it's a lot of money. And then you were talking about the guy who the federal government was chasing for years. He just kept moving it and he had access to it. Yeah. So it was
1: a, uh, what was the name of that? was a blue hippo or I can't remember the name of the company, but it was basically a tech company in Maryland that um, they were they were, they're were targeting lower income people and say this is when when computers were still super expensive, and they're like, hey, you can get a computer with ten easy payments of whatever. After that, we'll ship it to you. And I don't think they ever started shipping them. They just started. They were basically hoarding money. They stopped responding. They had you know no customer service. So the uh, DA and whole, like federal government came down on them. And I don't know if he knew this already before going into it or what, but he basically had these accountants working for him and tax strategists that he'd shifted all the money out of the country. And the government literally spent like seven years chasing it. And every time they'd find it in a country, his lawyers were ahead of them and would shift it to a different country that didn't allow for extradition or whatever you yeah. want to call it. So they couldn't keep chasing it. And it was just like the amount of effort that went into protecting this guy's money. And he was like living in a $12 million house that technically wasn't his because it was under like five layers of LLCs. And they, it was just, It was. I mean, it sucks because he, it was a scam, but like just, the whole structure when they studied like what he was doing to actually protect his money. And that it's just, that exists. And I just didn't even know that was the case.
0: (laughs) I had no clue until you told me. Um, (laughs) So with the IP thing, can you do that at really any level? And what's, what does Amazon do? And you're the only person I feel like I asked this. Amazon does the same thing from the Virgin islands. And then the IP company leases out all of their stuff from the Virgin islands. And then that's how they avoid their taxes. Yeah, can everybody do that? Or can I do that? You can.
1: Um, the government uh, tax law changed a little bit and I'm I, I I don't I'm not a tax expert so I can't tell you exactly what changed but I know that it has allowed certain areas where they used to have tax havens for the United States to go back and tax it. So uh, with a company that size, I mean they have their own legal team that's trying to figure all right. that shit out. Know. For the average person, yes, you can. It also depends on where you're considered your residency and everything else. So just like with the Puerto Rico, you know, if you went and lived there for six months, you can get, you know, tax uh, exemptions and things like that. Uh, so there are still countries you could do that. What the ones that I've found are like uh, Mauritius and uh, I think even Portugal at this point. So like you basically pay for a small little piece of land that's quote unquote yours so that you can get a passport. Then you become a citizen of there. So then you can avoid certain tax liabilities, even though the U S can come after you. And it's, it's a shell game. Um, I think if you have a significant amount of money, it's worth playing. Um, if it's smaller amounts, I I don't, to me, it was just like, I'm fine paying some taxes. I know that I have enough tax strategies. I could reduce it at this point. Like, is it really worth me going through all these hoops to protect it? But if I, you know, if I had another hundred million dollar business or something like that, I might consider just putting it offshore and just, not dealing with it right now.
0: <laughs> okay. Only a couple more questions, bro. Thank you again so much. Yeah. Um, what are the most important skills you think an entrepreneur should develop?
1: Um, oh, that's a good one. I mean, the, the quick, the easiest one is having a thick skin, like the amount of stuff that you're going to be uh, that you're going to be hit with and the obstacles you're going to occur like anytime you, this is one thing I hate about like going to to speaking events and stuff. Cause when you hear somebody on stage, they're talking about all the positive things that have happened and how they've grown and everything. They don't tell you that like two months ago they couldn't afford payroll or that like, you know, they were living in their car for a week because they couldn't afford a place to live. Like there's going to be ups and downs that you just, you can't expect. Like I, that was one of the things we realized after like six years in the business, every time we said, wow, we, didn't expect that to happen something else would happen so it's like just don't assume we've seen everything and just expect the next thing that's going to be coming is like a massive wave uh so i would say like having thick skin and being able to deal with ups and downs because a lot of people can't do it like that's that's what i've come to realize like i've you know family members that are like oh i'd like to start a business i'm like you don't have the wherewithal to deal with yeah you know showing up and your business is gone the next day and you got to try to figure it out like it's I'd say that's one of the skill sets. Um, but also, you know, understanding your skill sets, probably the bigger one. Um, most people don't really understand what they're good at. They might say they're good at one thing, but when you look at like personality tests and everything else like that, they've become so accurate that like, just by taking them and understanding like what is your strongest skill set and what's going to give you the most energy and most value. It, it's. I do it now for all of our employees and everything. It's yeah. like, I want to understand what they're really good at and let's take off the crap that they're not good at because all you're doing is just draining their energy by giving them stuff that they can't, you know, they're, they're not, isn't their skill set. Um, and that, that kind of goes to the other thing that I'd say is learning to hire the right people. Um, too many people go off resumes anymore, and it, resumes are the most antiquated w- way of hiring somebody, like putting them through personality tests, understanding what their skill set is. And like, it's really easy for somebody to lie and not lie, but like pretend to be what you need them to be in the beginning. But eventually that's gonna come through. And it's like and if that's not their true personality, you know, 60, 90 days into a hiring, like you've already lost thousands of dollars and everything. It's like it, you it could end up actually crushing your company by hiring the wrong person. So uh, hiring the right people would would be one of the skill sets that I would say. Uh, even if you okay. don't have it, finding somebody that's really good at it.
0: Okay, that's what I was going say. Where did you learn how to hire? Because right now my HR department does most of the hires that I like the last person. I really just want to see what they're like morally. Yeah. Um,
1: I used to do it all myself. And I realized it just, I was not good at, I just wasn't good at it. Like I, you know, I look at a paper, I'm like, okay, you have some of the skill sets that I think you would need. They would come in, I try to gauge their personality on an interview. You know, they're always on their their best behavior. And then it would, uh, it would just end up resulting in, you know, 90 days, 120 days. I'm like, wow, this is not the person I thought I hired. Um, so I just started hitting up people that I knew were hiring a ton of people. So I had one friend that had literally just hired like hundred and some people. I was like, can you just walk me through your process? Like I'm trying to reinvent the wheel when you've already figured out something because you've been hiring that many people, uh, and then observing like the new technology that's coming out. So like, uh, I probably should be an affiliate for this company, but like a predictive index is the one that's yeah, kind that's of, it. and, and it's just like, and they, not only do they tell you their personality, but they tell you how they match up with your personality. And it's like, yeah, it's amazing. So like There's using better them people, it's way. almost eliminated the need for me to fire anybody lately, and it's it's amazing. It's like, wow, it's so much easier than just guessing. It.
0: <laughs> what is your PI? Um, what is your PI?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I haven't looked at it recently. Um, I don't know. I can get that for you though. I don't, I don't actually know what that is off the top right. of my head.
0: <laughs> Mine is a maverick. And it's, uh, right, well, I, I'm,
1: I'm probably guessing that I am a maverick. Um, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. I'll have to okay. look it up and later. then
0: what books would you recommend to entrepreneurs?
1: Um, well, definitely about like the wealth, wealth aspect. For scaling, um, man, for scaling. Um, I was going to say the one that always comes to my mind is, but it's not about scaling. It's predictably irrational. So it's like understanding human psychology and like how some of the big corporations literally just use little techniques that to influence people, even though the behavior seems irrational. Mm -hmm. Um, I've actually just, uh, what's the book by Ray Dalio? Um, There's
0: no one. Is it principles? Principles. Principles is the open.
1: That one has been fantastic. Uh, I started reading that. I'm kind of like halfway through it, but just some of the philosophies and everything around that. Um, I don't, I probably don't read as much as I should, even though I have a, library books here. Uh, I tend to tap into like people that I respect in business and kind of follow mm. them versus like reading books about it. So like Mark Cuban, I'm fascinated by Mark. I just think he's an awesome entrepreneur and he's got a great personality. So like I follow people like him, uh, Warren Buffett and those kind of guys and just kind of pick little nuggets from them, but it, uh, I'm kind of drawn a blank on like strategy books that I've, that I've read. And then what, bro, what hobbies do you have? uh so i've been training muay thai now for about two years which is pretty interesting it's a completely different skill set than basketball is for sure (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so i that uh i've got a couple acres out here so we started doing uh i planted an orchard and doing some outdoor work um and then getting into racing and stuff like that so
0: (laughs) racing what, like cars
1: Yeah, so I've gone to a couple different racing schools now. um, And then I started going down, well, you know, the Salt Flats. I've been going down the Salt Flats with my car and just ripping around out there too. So uh, that's been a lot of fun. That's sort of my adrenaline kick that I get.
0: (laughs) All right. Um, If anyone else who's watching, if you have any questions, let us know. Some quick recaps. Well, really things about me. Uh, We have the winning mastermind coming up. I was trying to get Gary to come, but it's going to be in Africa. It's on January 28th and 29th. If you are interested in attending that. We have some amazing speakers. Los is actually the way way I met Gary. It will be speaking there as well. Yeah, bro. Do you have any other parting words for any entrepreneur who's watching this?
1: Uh, just when you think you're about to hit the breaking point, you're gonna about to break through something and better. Oh yeah. A lot of people quit right before the best things happen for them.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on, bro. Where can people find you?
1: Uh, yeah, my, and I, every week I post probably two or three things on my blog. Uh, there's no sales pitch or anything on there. It's really just content and brain dump for me. So just a way for me to get out some of the stuff that I've been learning. Uh, but if you go to GaryNeilan.com, you can go to my blog, uh, free content on there about everything from e-commerce to managing businesses to failures. I've had everything. So it's really, really just what goes on up here. I just kind of throw it out there on paper.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, bro. I know your time is very valuable.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Yep. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Winning Move Podcast. I hope it helps you make all the right moves in your life and business. Please make sure to go like and subscribe on any podcast platform that you're listening to. And make sure to go follow me on Instagram at StratDaddy. Thank you guys so much. I'll talk to you soon.